Welcome, everybody. My name is Dirk, preaching pastor here at Encounter Church, and we're glad that you're with us today because today we kick off a brand new series here at Encounter called Evidence. Now, if you've been tracking with us through the month of January, you know that we were looking at the book of Ruth in a series called Unbreakable, where we were looking at the invisible providential hand of God, about how he's always working for your good, on your behalf, behind the scenes. Today, we take a look at God's other hand, his visible hand of miracles. And that's what this new series is about. It's about how God sometimes pulls back the curtain, rearranges the laws of nature to work on our behalf in form of a supernatural act, in form of a, of a miracle. Now, if I'm going to be honest with you this morning, this series for the next four weeks, the month of February, it's going to get a little uncomfortable for some of you. It's going to be a little bit the case that I'm going to get up in your business a little and make you kind of think about some things that maybe you're not entirely sure about or are comfortable thinking, especially if you didn't grow up in a context or religious home where you, where you thought very deeply about God's supernatural act of miracles. Um, some of you, this is going to be uncomfortable because some of you, you know, maybe you, your idea of faith is one where maybe God did that in the Bible, but he doesn't do it anymore. Or he wouldn't do it anymore. And it's just not something where we expect. It's not something we think about very often. Maybe you come here today and you're like, I'm jaded, right? I'm, I'm, I'm bitter. I just assume that uh, science has explained so much of things already that if there's anything it can't explain, that, that given enough time or given enough resources, you know, it'll explain that thing away too. Or maybe you're jaded here today because you've just really been embarrassed too many times about somebody in middle America claiming that they saw the face of Jesus in a potato chip. And said, so that's a miracle right there. And you're going like, no, I just, it's a, it's a, no, it's a chip, right? There's thousands of them in a bag, maybe. You know, and you're just like, I just, I don't even want to think about this thing. I don't want to go there. It's just not in my background. I prefer not to think about it. And this series is going to be a little uncomfortable for you. So I want to say, first of all, you're welcome in this place. I hope that you'll show up again next week and the week after as we explore some of what these miracles are all about. And chances are, if you've been bitter about this or jaded, or if you don't really want to think about miracles all that much, chances are probably the idea of a miracle has been cast to you in an end of itself. That it was just about the healing or about the deliverance, about the protection or about the, uh, about the God providing, and it was just ended there. When we're gonna, what we're going to do in this series is take a look at those types of miracles told to us in the Bible and see about how they don't end in and of themselves, but they point to something infinitely greater. They point to, to evidence that God was here. In fact, that God is here, and he's living, and he's around, and he's still acting even, especially today. He is, he is healing, he is, he is uh, protecting, he is delivering, and today... We're going to see God provide. If you want to follow along, you can look up uh, 1 Kings chapter 17 in a Bible if you brought one with you and everybody has a phone, so I know you did. Otherwise, you can follow along in the, under the Bible's under the chairs in front of you and the words are going to be on the screen behind. Just as a heads up though, we're kind of dropping into the middle part, kind of beginning middle of a story. And so I kind of want us all to see what has happened or maybe hasn't yet happened in the story so far. Uh, the story is that in the Old Testament, the nation of Israel has now been recently broken up, kind of a into two loose coalitions called the two tribes of Judah, kind of in the south, and the coalition of these 10 other tribes in the northern region, and they got the name Israel. 
And that's the, that northern kingdom is the one that we're going to be following this morning. Uh, what has happened is that there's been a series of bad kings in this northern, and each one kind of progressively gets worse than the last. And so it's bad news until this guy Ahab comes along, and again we hear he is worse than all of them ahead of him. What's unique about Ahab isn't so much that he was a bad king, but it's who he was with. It was his queen that was really like pulling the levers in the background, running the kingdom, Jezebel. Completely side note, you don't just marry a person, you marry their family, you marry their heritage. In this case, Ahab married Jezebel and all of the religious and spiritual baggage that she brought with her. It's going to be important for what we see later on that Jezebel came from this northern area just north outside of Israel called the region of Sidon. She came from Sidon where her dad was king of Sidon and that made her the princess of Sidon until she marries Ahab, the king in Israel, and she goes on to become the queen in this, in this area. Now, meanwhile, she's leading Israel down this road of Baal worship and Asherah pole, and it's just this nasty stuff, leading the Israelites away from God. God raises up a prophet, Elijah, and listen, Elijah and Jezebel are like oil and water. There's just constant conflict between the two of them, always duking, sparring it out. Most of that in the story that we've seen, uh, most of that in the story that we're dropping in on, we haven't seen that play out yet, but it will. We've now only seen, as we drop into this story, Elijah come up to, to King Ahab and Queen Jezebel and simply make this declaration that because Jezebel brought all this Baal worship and Asherah pole business into Israel, it's no longer going to rain until he says so. And he just kind of like drops the mic and walks away. Only he doesn't walk away, he runs away because that's not the news that anybody is going to want to receive. And he knows in the time between when he says it's not going to rain and, and for a few days they watch as it doesn't rain, that's called his head start. So he runs away. He finds this little like ravine he hides out in. There's this brook of water and it's, even though it's not raining, still the, the brook is being fed and the ravens miraculously come and feed him. And that's the part of the story we're not going to get to, but miraculous nonetheless. He's kept alive. And at that point in the story, that is where we drop in and we see the miracle of God's provision really start to act. Okay, so 1 Kings chapter 17 and it starts off in verse 7. It says that sometime later, the brook dried up because there had been no rain in the land. Now, this is a bit tangential from the topic of God providing for you, the miracle of provision, uh, because the brook is very much drying up. But I think it's worth pointing out that a lot of us are in a place in life where what we have and what we're relying on is drying up, like it's emptying out. I, I just sort of assume today that, that there's some of you who are going to work tomorrow or going to school tomorrow or embarking on some journey tomorrow and this week, and it just doesn't like spark joy for you like it used to. There's just, it's not that, there's not passion there. There's, maybe it's a political, maybe it's divisive. It's just robbing of your joy. It's like the brook that you've been relying on is beginning to dry up and you're asking God to change it. You're asking God to go backwards. You're asking God to make it like it was before. Move like I saw you moved before. And God is saying, we're not going backwards. 
We're actually going forwards. And what God is doing in the story here is he's actually taking away the very thing that Elijah was relying on in order to get him to move. Now, some of you maybe need to shift that prayer life of yours from God, make it like it was before. Bring me back the joy I had before. Shift it to God, what new place are you calling me? God, where are you going to be taking me from here? And the only way God is going to move you and move Elijah is to begin to create this holy discontentment with where he is right now. In this case, as long as he has a brook, he's staying put. The brook dries up, he puts his shoes on and starts to move. Where do you want me? Now that God has his attention, we read in the next line, verse 8, then the word, after the brook dries up and he's got the attention. Then the word of the Lord came to him. And verse 9 says, go at once to Zarephath in the region of Sidon and stay there. Somebody once asked me one time uh, how I'm so good at pronouncing names in the Bible. I'm not. I'm just confident. (laughs) Preaching trick. Um, Go at once to Zarephath in the region of Sidon and stay there. Uh, That's interesting. Who do we know? The one person maybe that you know who is also from the region of Sidon? Queen Jezebel. Go to Zarephath. I mean, I thought it was dangerous in Israel, but now you're telling me to go to Sidon, this little town, Zarephath? I brought a map because I just wanted us to see geographically where it is that God is calling him. We can see in the red, this is the loose uh, collection of where Israel sort of had influence and dominion over. Zarephath is up to the north in the yellow. In a time and day when it was widely assumed that deities, gods and goddesses, only had influence and authority within the geographic boundaries of their people and their worshipers, the idea of a prophet of God going to Sidon, going to Zarephath, well, outside of the border area, was unheard of. God, why do you want me to go to Sidon? Zarephath, this little town in the region of Sidon of all places, don't you know who's from there? Exactly. Because sometimes in our quest for finding provision, in our quest for trying to like fill this sort of shortage that we have, we think that God is going to be calling us to retreat. We think that God is calling us to this, this, this quiet place where, where we can restore our souls. We think that God is going to call us to a place of of nurture and care and calm and peace when God has actually another thing in mind. When God is going to provide for you, but he's going to provide for you by going north straight into the depths of hell. He's going to ask you to storm the gates because God maybe not is asking you to go on a retreat, but go on the offensive. And for Elijah, who's broken, beat up, and on the run, he goes, we're not even getting started yet. Go on. Go into Jezebel country. Go in the heart of Baal land. I've got something for you there. And he says, okay. Oh, and then he gets this word from God. Along the way in the heart of Baal country, where Queen Jezebel was the princess, God says, I have directed a widow there to supply you with food. (laughs) How many hungry fellows out there would not be enthused if God said, I've provided a broken, poor, starving widow. Don't worry. She'll give you something to eat. (laughs) I don't think I'm going to eat today (laughs) or maybe ever. In fact, what Elijah is going to find out isn't that she's just a poor widow. Uh, It's much worse than that. 
She's destitute in every sense of the word. Uh, This woman, as he finds her, is going to be gathering up sticks to build a fire, her last fire, because she's only got a little bit of flour left over, and she's only got a little bit of oil left in her jar. And she's going to mix the flour, and she's going to mix the oil, and she's going to make a little cake, a little bread over that fire. It's it's going to be a dinner roll, maybe. And she's going to break that in half, share it with her son. They're going to enjoy, if you could call it that, this last meal together. And then they will resolve to starve to death. She is without hope, destitute in every sense of the word. And this is the woman. This is the supernatural, providential hand of God? Listen, if you're going to write a couple things down, there'll be three. But the first point is that where God guides, God will provide. I mean, as odd as it sounds in the story for Elijah, the prophet, to be fed and nurtured and cared for uh, by a broken, poor, destitute widow in Baal country, Jezebel land, where God guides, he will provide he will find a way. That's his promise. If, if, if he guides. I think sometimes we, uh, we come to this and we're like, you know what? God will provide. Uh, God, God will help. Uh, God will show up. God will show us this supernatural hand of his whereby he's going to work the miracle of provision on my behalf. I believe it. Uh, Philippians 4. Uh, Paul writing from prison, which should be our first clue. And he's writing to the church in Philippi. And he says, and, he says, and God will meet all of your needs according to, in proportion to, representative of all the riches and the glory that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. God will meet all of our needs. Except sometimes it doesn't really seem like God is meeting those needs. Because we've got a mortgage that we're barely paying for. Come to think about it, that addition onto the house was probably not such a great idea. We're still paying off that vacation uh, from last year. Uh, Somebody might come and take our cars because we haven't made the payments. Uh, And on top of everything else, why not? We're still paying off Christmas from 2014. (laughs) God, why aren't you meeting all of my needs? God has met your needs and you spent it on your wants. (laughs) He promised to show up to meet the needs, but there's a difference between those needs and those wants. But no, no, no. where God guides, he provides. I I think it's probably worth pulling back the, the layers on this one and just asking one more time, God, where did you call me? Where did you move me? And if you moved me there, how then are you going to provide since you are the one who brought me here? And where God guides, he provides. For Elijah and for you, he has a plan. Listen to the plan. So he went to Zarephath, Elijah now, and when he came to the town gate, a widow was there gathering sticks. And he called to her and he asked, would you bring me a little water in a jar so I may have a drink? And as she was going to get it, he called, oh, (laughs) And bring me, please, a piece of bread, your only bread. You've only got enough for just you and your son for a little meal, if you could call it that. Who is this guy? Does he know how far away from Israel he is? Verse 2, 
As surely, 12, as surely as the Lord your God lives, she replied, I don't have any bread, only a handful of flour in a jar and a little olive oil in a jug. And I'm gathering a few sticks to take home and make a meal for myself and my son so that we may eat it and die. Elijah said to her, don't be afraid. Go home and do as you've said. But first make a small loaf of bread for me, for what you have and bring it to me. And then make something for yourself and for your son. For this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says, the jar of flour will not be used up and the jug of oil will not run dry until the day the Lord sends rain on the land. At this point, church, I think it's going to be very, very helpful for us as a community or to you as individuals to start to consider what that area of shortage is in your life. I mean, for her, her area of shortage is like having something in the pantry. What is your area of shortage? When you think about your jug, your jar, and there's only a little bit of it left in it, what is it? I think for some of us, what is it is time. And we've only got a tiny little bit of it. And what we have of it, margin, is used up and spent a long time ago. Because if you're like me, you will open up your Google Calendar on a desktop, because I'm old-fashioned that way, so I can see everything. And it's color-coded, and it's got meetings, it's got appointments, it's got deadlines. It's just a wall of words hitting me. It's got soccer practice and daycare schedules, and i got to have something to say on Sunday, right? It's just like this smack me in the face. And it's like right there. That's a shortage of time. Some of you are going, you know, it's, it's not so much time, but it's the fact that the kid's soccer practice has to get paid for. It's the daycare has to get paid for. It's that the opportunity to take classes and write papers will eventually have to get paid for. Sorry. The cars have to get paid. The, car, the house has to, it all has to get paid for. And I'm working three jobs to, to make this whole thing work. And you're going, I look in the jar, and if I only have a little bit of it, what is it? What's my shortage? It's finances. It's money. It. Others of you, it's like this relational thing. And as soon as I say, like, relational thing, maybe it's because we're coming out of the Ruth and Boaz story last week, last month. But it's like relationally, like, yeah, yeah, God hasn't provided him or God hasn't provided her. And I'm looking at this in a romantic sense. And I'm wondering, when is it going to happen? When am I going to get married? When are we going to live happily ever after? When is God going to fix this crummy marriage that I'm in right now? But maybe it's not a relational thing, or maybe it's not a romantic thing, I mean, at all. Because one of the things in the church that we're guilty of skipping over a lot is that there's a lot of ways to be filled and to be emptied relationally without it being a romantic thing at all. What I mean, and this is, this is probably, this is so real for me, but like the best example of this, as I see on like this Instagram uh, meme, so you know it's godly truth. <laughs> Don't email me, that was sarcasm. Um, but it was, it's this Instagram meme that says, can we please talk about the miracle of Jesus that he had 12 close friends in his 30s? And I'm like, yes. <laughs> As somebody in his 30s, I'm like, I thought it would get easier to make friends. I watch my kids and they just go to kindergarten like, you want to be my friend? And they're like, sure. And then all of a sudden they're like best friends. I'm like, what? Heads up, it gets harder. And we're like, right, some of us, we're looking at that going, what would that be like? 
And this relational like emptiness of not having somebody meaningful that can speak into my life, that can, I can speak into their life on a close level. And you're looking into the jar and you're going, what is it? Because it is empty. And it's like, I don't have anybody like that in my life. It's important to identify what the it is. Listen to me. Because the second point, God is going to be asking you to pour it out. And that is going to be the most counterintuitive, uncomfortable thing that you can ever imagine. Because it's like this shortage mentality of saying, like, 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 I only have so little of it, and you're asking me to give it up? Yes. Because the second truth in this story, outside of where God guides, he provides, is that what's given is what's multiplied. But it does have to be given. There's an inconsistency in the Bible with God that drives me crazy, but God doesn't scoot around it and just owns it. It's that sometimes in the, in the visible, supernatural hand of God, he like does everything on his own, right? Even, even if we're obstinate, even if we're stubborn, where God like tells the people of Israel when they're slaves in Egypt, listen, I'm going to save you whether you like it or not. And you get the sense they didn't want to be saved, but he does it anyway, right? He, he drags them out of Egypt and says, no, you're my people. I'm going to shape you and I'm going to form you. There's certain times in the Bible where God does it all by himself exclusively 100% of the time. And there's other places in the Bible, for whatever reason, he chooses to involve us. And I don't know why. In the story here, he tells the woman, listen, I'm going to involve you. You're going to start pouring. And it's only after you start pouring will you see the multiplication. Jesus, I'm going to feed the 5,000. But first, I'm going to need this lunch from a kid of a dinner roll and some fish sticks. And I'll feed everybody with the surplus left over. But first, you really do have to give the lunch up. And I don't always know why that is the case. And I just want to be clear on something this morning. The supernatural work of God in the forgiveness of sins in Jesus Christ's death and resurrection is an exclusively 100% God-first initiated act where even the faith that we have is God's initiation, is a gift from him. Other times, he chooses to involve us a little bit more directly. One of the hardest examples of this is in Genesis 22, Abraham and God's request of Abraham to sacrifice his son Isaac. Abraham knows that the promise of God was to make him into a great nation. He's only got one son. He's doing the math. One minus one. Okay, God. He takes Isaac up on a mountain. He's got his fire. He's got his lumber for the altar. He's got his son. His son Isaac asked God, where's the, where's the lamb? Abraham, where's the lamb? And he goes, God will provide. He gets to the top of the hill, binds his son. Abraham was probably 80, 100 plus years old. Isaac was 30, 40. So I'm not sure how that worked. But he binds up his son on top of the mountain, puts a knife up in the air, and he hears the voice, don't, stop, stop where you are. And he looks up and there's a ram caught, caught in the thicket. God provided. Why? Why does God choose to involve us? Why did the woman have to start pouring? Why did the kid have to give his lunch? Why did Abraham have to have knife in hand? 
I think it's because God is like, he's trying to break our gaze from the shortage to the giver. Like he knows when it, whatever it is, begins to run dry and run out, the, the more consumed we become with it. And so he asks us to give it up, start pouring, start giving, put your son on the altar. He starts, he starts asking us to give it up because he knows that's how we will break our gaze from it to him. And for Abraham, that's exactly what happened. Uh, Abraham, from that moment on, receives a refreshed promise of God that his sons and daughters will number, his descendants will number uh, the, as many as the sand on the seashore and the stars in the sky. And Abraham said, I believe you. Because his gaze wasn't at the shortage any longer, even though he died with, with his pitiful, fledgling little family that was far from the number of sand on the seashore and stars in the sky, not even close, not by a long shot. But he said, okay, God, I believe you because my gaze is not on the shortage, but on the giver. I will follow you and I will trust you always. And God is saying, if we're going to break this thing open, I need you to take whatever it is and start pouring Church, start pouring. There's a true story um, that I heard about a guy who was um, who's starting out in life in just about every sense. Right? He's um, he's newly married. Um, he's uh, he, he just finds out he's got a he's got a baby on the way, uh, and he's a new Christian on top of that, and a new in his faith walk. And as he tells his own story, his testimony, he goes, "Listen, I was um, I grew up poor, like like really poor." We didn't have a lot. Most Christmases, I, I don't remember getting much of anything. And if we did, it was like socks. But we were happy because at least, you know, we had something. He goes, that, that did something to me. It like changed me. You know, I carried that, that poorness with me every, everywhere that I went. And even when I got older and I started working and I started having things, it's like I just held on to it so tightly, so deeply, because I didn't know if I would ever get anything else again. And so, so I, couldn't be, I couldn't be free with it. I couldn't be, be generous with it. Like, like, it's out of the question. There's no way. And he goes, I had a mentor in my life, by God's grace, who identified that in me and said, I think that's the area. I think that's the next step that God is calling you to step out on. He goes, no, it's anything else but that. He goes, no, that's it. And the challenge was to begin living generously. Uh, Bible calls that tithing, tenthing, uh, ten percenting. We do it as a, as a church. New Testament doesn't pick that up. It just says, hey, be generous. Uh, Jesus had a tendency not to back away from the laws of the Old Testament, but had to, to expand them dramatically. Uh, Adultery is expanded into, uh, even if you look at a woman lustfully, that's adultery, right? It's expanded and it's deepened. The Old Testament talks about 10%. New Testament talks about generosity. This guy's like, what are you, I'm deeply uncomfortable with this. His, his mentor goes, is before the days of Amazon. So he goes to the Hallmark store, picks up a journal, a, a blank journal, and says, uh, it's covered in flowers and lace and is about the most feminine thing, but like, this is the way it goes. And says, here, this blank journal, that's God's providence book. 
Like God, that's, that's God's provision book for you in your life. And he flips through and the pages are empty. And that's like, okay, <laughs> that's not a great sign. He goes, no, 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 make a commitment. And, and if God doesn't follow through where he guides, he provides. If he doesn't follow through, give up. You have my permission, you have my blessing, just give up. But every time God does show up, just write it in the book. Just entry after entry. And so he starts. Not knowing what to expect, but God shows up in a couple places, and so he logs them. At the end of the first week, there's enough to keep going. End of the first month, he's got a number of entries in that book. By the end of that first year, he had finished the book with entries of God's provision cover to cover. That's not the point of the story. The point of the story is it wasn't until that that newborn of his was a second grader crawling up on his lap and looking for a nighttime story. He pulls out this flower and lace provision book and he starts to read story after story of God showing up in their family's life. And the point of the story is that the kid is sitting there and he has the most, he has the revel, a revelation of a lifetime where this second grade kid comes to the stark realization that we live in a miraculous family and we serve a miraculous God, don't we, Dad? Yes, we do. And he said the thing about it was not a single one of those entries was financial. It was just story after story about how we decided to put Jesus first in our family, Jesus first in our life, and how everything just had a way of figuring it out. And he goes, as a result of all this, my kid, he comes to the revelation of a lifetime. You know, the number one spiritual ailment that people tend to bring to me Outside of the stuff where like you messed up and you know that you messed up and you need to hear that Jesus loves you and forgives you anyway, um, the number one spiritual ailment that people come to me is saying, listen, I'm just, I don't feel God's presence. I don't feel close to him. And as a heads up, my answer will be twofold. Number one, I'll tell you, it doesn't matter how you feel. Jesus did not die and come back to life so that you would feel saved, but so that you would be saved. And number two, what are you trusting him with? Because what we often do is we carve out these little areas in life where we don't need God and we don't rely on God for anything. And then we're surprised when we say, it doesn't seem like God is really near and, and relevant in my life at all. And so I just want to offer that, that if we're not trusting God with anything, we shouldn't be surprised when we can't see him moving anywhere. Start pouring and watch for God. That's what she does. She starts pouring. And then in verse 15, she went away and did as Elijah had told her. And there was food every day for Elijah and, and for the woman and for her, for her family. For the jar of water was not used up and the jug of oil did not run dry in keeping with the word the Lord spoken by Elijah. I love there's this shift in language from it was this widow and her son, and now it's like family, and now it's like this village. It's like second cousins and great uncles and aunts and nephews. They all kind of come out of the woodwork as she now has a family to join in the surplus, to join in, in what God is doing. 
And so where God guides, he provides. What's given is what's multiplied. And here, you never know, she never knew what, who would be blessed by the provision that God did in her life. She never knew, but they're all experiencing it. And I love this part of the story. You get the sense, Zarephath is not a big town. And, and like the families, the word spreading all over. Soon after this, in the verses that follow, her son actually dies, the one that she resigned to die with. He passes away unexpectedly. She goes to Elijah. What happened, man? I thought your God provides. Elijah goes, lays down on the boy, raises him up to new life. Everybody in the village, they like, see this happening. They hear about her, her testimony, and she declares, there is one true God in his presence, and his power is not bound to one geographic area or one people group, but goes far beyond it. I'm living proof of it. My son is living proof of it. And they declare their allegiance in the Lord, the God of Elijah, and now the God of Zarephath in Sidon. Because the first story in the Bible recorded of somebody who died and came back to life was in the center of Jezebel country, Baal land. Because God is going on the offensive with his provision. Because God is calling all people, all places, everywhere to him. He's saying you never know, you don't know who is going to be blessed, how they're going to be blessed by God's provision through you. Their world changed. Our world is changing. You know, we started a partnership with a food pantry just up the road uh, about five years ago when we moved into the area because we recognized there's a lot of people who, uh, who, need, uh, who need basic resources, like something to eat around here. And so we started this partnership where as a church we would tithe. Uh, we'd give uh, one of our tithes, our quarters, would go to the pantry just up the road to provide for food insecure families right here in West Michigan. And you guys hear about it because they're a fantastic strategic partner of ours. Um, well, I didn't know this, but uh, it was a little while after we started that, uh, one of their longtime board members, I think even a founding board member, uh, came up to me and said, you know, we were just about, when, you're, when that first check from you guys came in unexpectedly, we had no idea who you were. Your sign wasn't even on the building yet. Um, but we were having conversations about closing down. And we thought, this is, we can't even keep the lights on anymore. It's just no longer worth it. We're the only food pantry in this stretch, in, in this area of Southeast Grand Rapids. But I guess this light is going out. And then your check showed up. And then as, as you grew, and as you grew in generosity, the, the checks got bigger. And, and as an organization bought out their building and they didn't have a place to be, and that's really a problem for a food pantry, they were able to, to move and to buy this place across the street, kitty corner to us, staying in the same very tight geographic area. And they're even now in a, in a shopping mall because even the most poor among us still deserve to be recognized as the image bearers of God that they are and get to go shopping for their necessities. And it's a story that God is telling about how God is providing again and again and again in all these little ways because we never know, you never know who God is going to bless by your, by his providence through you and his provision through you. Can we just have a little hand for what God is doing in that story in the pantry in West Michigan? It is incredible. It is incredible and you never know. You never know. But today, I just, I want to, I want to focus in, I want to hone in, because there's probably, there's probably this area of greatest necessity of some people in the room today. And your greatest shortage 
It is not financial, it's not relational, it's not time even. But your greatest shortage is one of walking around with the shame, walking around with guilt, and walking around with fear and not knowing what to do with it, church. And so if there's someone in the room today who's like, yes, and I've tried, uh, I, I've tried new ways of life, I've tried new moralities, I've tried, I've tried new systems, I want to say you don't need a new system, you need a Savior, and his name is Jesus Christ. Because he took your guilt, he took your shame, he took my fear of anything and everything. And we watch as he nailed it to the cross and buried it in the grave, left it there, and rose up to new life. And that church, that church is our area of greatest shortage. And it will not be fixed in anything that we have to offer, but of something that he has already accomplished. So in just a few minutes, I'm going to ask you to stand up and we're going to close in prayer like we usually do. And I'm going to say a prayer slowly so you can repeat it to yourself in your own heart. And I just want to ask today that if you pray that prayer for the first time or for the first time in a long time and you mean it, just tell someone. Just tell one person what God is doing in your life, how God is providing your great, for your greatest shortage in your life. Would you stand up with me? Let's pray together. God, we come here as a people and we have shortages. Maybe they're financial in nature, maybe they're time, maybe they're relational. God, maybe we're mourning or maybe we're doubting, maybe we don't know how to make it through the next week and we just need you to provide maybe just for today. God, some of us, our deepest area of shortage is a spiritual sense. Not knowing how to find that ultimate fulfillment and meaning in life and afterward. God, I pray today that, that you make us receptive and open to whatever spirit you have to say. At this time, I just want to pray and ask you to repeat these words in your own heart. Dear Jesus, I give you all of my shame, all of my sin, all of my fear. Bury it in your tomb and raise me up to new life. Thank you for the gift of eternity which starts now. And with your eyes closed and your heads bowed, I want to ask you, if you prayed that prayer for the first time or for the first time in a long time and you meant it, to simply tell one person. Go to the prayer table in the back during this last song. Tell them. Come up and tell me afterwards. Pull out a connection card in the seat back in front of you. Write out your story. Drop it in the box between the doors as you go. Tell the person that you came with. Go to encounterchurch.org slash baptism and get ready to show the world you've been raised with Christ. Tell one person. Jesus, it's in all of this that we pray your name. Amen.